0: Hey guys, my name is Eric Dento. This is another podcast of Government to Private where we talk with a variety of different people who have transitioned successfully from all walks of government into the private sector. Today with us, we have Adam Korn. Adam and I have known each other for several years. We've collaborated on on multiple initiatives, and I'm super happy to have him here with us today. Welcome, Adam.
1: Eric, good to see you, man. How are you?
0: I'm doing well, man. Doing well. You know, it's Friday, so I can't complain too much, brother. So Hey, I'd love for you just to give a you know high level overview as as vulnerable as non vulnerable as you want to be to the people who are going to be listening on the call about your background.
1: Absolutely, I'll go for um, I'll go for vulnerable, very vulnerable. Sounds good. So I um, you know, I, when I was in, D, I grew up in DC, and you know, a lot of my friends worked for the government, and and uh, that were older than me, like my 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 brothers and sisters. Uh, friends and whatnot, and I wanted to work for the government too. So I went to grad school and studied you know security. This is right after 9/11, uh, immediately started working for the CIA. So as a uh, contractor initially and eventually, you know became a Fed. and then I worked, I've transitioned to the National Nuclear Security Administration, uh, doing some more intelligence type work. really enjoyed it, did that for a number of years. Um, and then I taught at a military university, a uh, national defense university for two years. You know, I was, it was a detailed assignment and I thought that was awesome. Um, and then, but I really was, you know, I, I spoke to quite a few people who are a little bit older than me in the federal government. And I asked them their opinion because I was having some second thoughts about being a lifer or not. And uh, I got, they gave me a lot of very good information help me, me make, helped me make the decision to, to move on to the private sector. They made a very compelling argument. And then I, you know, spent about a year and a half, you know, really trying to make that happen, but it was definitely very, very difficult, but the outcome was fantastic. And I'd love to go into more detail of what that journey was like.
0: Yeah. Feel free, brother. Awesome.
1: Well, so what happened was, so I realized I was like, I was teaching at the military university and I knew that that detail assignment was only going to be two years. Then I have to transition, you know, back to my old job at the National Nuclear Security Administration And I just wasn't excited for it. I just was kind of a little bit burned out. Um, I felt like the pace of the government was a little bit slow, um, and there was just a lot of bureaucracy. And I was, um, you know, traveling a ton, which was great, and I loved it. But, you know, traveling there's the reality. There's the the fantasy of traveling for the government and 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 for work, and then there's the reality. And the reality is you're in you know long flights, you know, not flying business class, you know, at all. You're flying like coach. You know, long flights, halfway across the world, getting you know, getting to you know whatever Abu Dhabi at you know one o'clock in the morning, and then having to you know give a presentation at like you know eight a.m. the next day. You <laughs> just like you know zero, and then like the second it's over, hopping over to the next country and being in a lot of hotels. It, the life of it gets kind of old fast. So I wasn't super excited to go back to the old job at the National Nuclear Security Administration. So I was kind of having an existential crisis because I only knew working for the government. I didn't know of any other reality. And I just thought I wasn't good enough to work in private sector. But that being said, I looked at all my, my peers, my friends who I went to high school with, college with, who all, all worked in the private sector, and they all were doing so much better than me financially. They weren't traveling at all. And they had boring jobs. They were like accountants and consultants, <laughs> stuff like that. But they also had houses and cars and, you know, and, and took really cool vacations. And, you know, I, whereas I couldn't leave the country unless I was going TDY, you know, temporary duty, you know, and, and being sent to places. And then, you know, for my vacation, I would like, you know, be able to go to like Daytona beach and stuff and party. But aside from that, I was like really kind of hurting for funds and I didn't see much of a future. So I, I kind of, I, what I did was, but I was like, but maybe I should just stay and in, in retire and then I can start living. So what I did was I found people that were about five years older than me who worked in federal government. And I reached out to a number of them and just said, you know, some, some of them were just people I, I respected because I heard them speaking at a conference or, um, or I worked with them in some capacity. And I said, would you mind having it if I could take you out to coffee and, um, and I want to get your opinion on something, should I stick around or should I, you know, the federal government or should I go to the private sector? And all of them were just so emphatically like, get out, get out while you're <laughs> still a young man. And they're like, hey, they're like, they just talked about how you know they're like best case scenario, you're gonna buy a house in Centerville, Virginia, or maybe Poolsville, Maryland, you know, and you know, God forbid you have a kid or two, because that just means the day you retire as a Fed, you're gonna have to come back as a contractor to pay for their educations. And (laughs) and one guy was just like, if you stay with the government, you know, you're gonna if I if you stay in the government long enough, I'm gonna end up working for you as a contractor and you're gonna be just be bossing me around. And he was just like, I don't like the idea of that. So I want you, he's like, I, I have a personal motivation to ask you to leave as well. And so um, I was like looking around and you know I re- I applied to like you know hundreds of jobs, thousands of jobs in the private sector. I wasn't getting anywhere. I really didn't know what I wanted to do or what value I had, but I knew I loved security and I, you know, and I was interested in like physical security. I was interested in adult education and training. Um, And so I kept on applying for jobs, got nowhere. And finally, I had to, you know, I took a break from it. And the turning point was I finally just bit the bullet and I hired a resume writer. I know when I worked for the federal government and you have USAjobs.gov, and if you hire a resume writer and then, you know, other federal people see that, they know that you did it because you can tell and they think it's lame. But if you do that in the private sector they're like, they might know that you hired someone to, to really kind of give you a snappy resume and a snappy LinkedIn, and they respect it. They're like, this is a person who's smart, who outsources this type of work to people who do it. And that's what you do in the private sector because time is money. If you can outsource things that, you know, that's a good thing. And, and that way you can focus on what really matters in the private sector. So I had to, you know, just, you know, I, find, it took me about like three or four months to find the right resume writer that I really trusted because it does, it costs a lot of money and I didn't have a lot of money as a fed. We finally found one that I thought was phenomenal. And she rewrote my resume, did an outstanding job and, you know, almost immediately like the results came back, like, you know, in terms of there started being interest in my application I, this whole time I thought it was me, who was not marketable but it turns out just my resume and my persona on linkedin wasn't marketable for the private mm-hmm. sector. So once I made the investment to do that it really made a big difference and then google you know along with I you know was one of the companies i applied to and they just reached out to me and said hey we saw your resume we liked it a lot we have a position you know the position that you applied to we think you'd be a great fit would you like to fly out here and i interviewed with them it took you know many months and a background check and all these sort of things that you know it seemed even more comprehensive than the the background check I had with the federal government at the time. And then um yeah and then they hired me and then relocated me from DC to San Francisco. And I, I stayed at Google for a period of time, then moved on to Fitbit, and Fitbit to Meta, and then Meta to now where I currently work, which is at GoFundMe and Classy.org.
0: Man, that's awesome, man. I, I love I love listening to every every single person's unique story because that's what it is. It's unique. You know, um, everyone's trying to get to you know, the final destination, but the journey is different for everybody, you know, and what work, what may work well for you may not work well for someone else and vice versa, you know, and just listening to your story. I hope that every single person who listens to it is able to come to the same conclusion of there's a lot of different ways to get to the private sector. Yeah. You know, there's not just one way. There's not just two ways. There's a lot of different ways. You know, and in your case, you networked, you built a lot of relationships. You reached out to people who had gone before you and said, "Hey, you know, what should I do? What what what's the advice, etc." You realized that you know your experience wasn't being articulated appropriately on paper. You know, and you reached out to a resume writer that you trusted. You got some really really great results. And now that you've now you've been in the private sector for a number of years, now you've worked at some of the biggest names in the business you know and you know I think your story is is definitely one that a lot of people are gonna resonate with
1: that's good it's real I mean there's also a strategy I found really that worked extraordinarily well for me once I got into the private sector it made things a little easier of course but you know when I was at Google I really kind of you know I spent my time there and I wanted to move on um and so you know, I was, I thought, well, I got this Google on my resume and I'm, I'm going to be very marketable. And then I, I, for some reason I I wasn't like, I just was like, people weren't, I wasn't getting interviews and I was having a tough time with it. So what I started doing was I started a cold call, I cold contacting people on LinkedIn um, and just saying, Hey, look, I, you know, it's sort of like that, you know, the CIA thing, you spot assess, you know, recruit that sort of thing. Like I would just say, Hey, I noticed your profile on LinkedIn. I think it's amazing. You've had a really cool career that, you know, it's awesome. You work at, this is what I did when someone who was someone who worked at Meta. And I said, um, cause I was targeting Meta. And I said, I think that you and I, I sent the same sort of email to like maybe 25 people at Meta. And I said that you've had a really cool career. Would you mind just like having a quick chat with me over the phone?" And then, um, you know, and, and I can learn a little, little bit more from you. And I made sure I didn't ask for any, when they, you know, if I sent that to 15 people, only one responded, but that's a really good return actually. So once I said, sure, I'll talk to you, why not? And I made sure I didn't ask anything of him, you know, on that phone call. I just said, I, I just asked him a lot of questions, tell, told him how great I thought his career was. And, you know, I asked him, Hey, in the future, um, you know, if I have more questions, can I reach out to you again? And then I waited a period of time, like a month. And then I emailed him and said, Hey, can we set up another call? And he had a good experience with me and we had a fun conversation. So we built a friendship. Then, you know, over time, we built a friendship and then, um, you know, then I, you know, it's funny to this day, I've never met this individual because by the time I was hired to Meta, he got a job in New York and left, but he was instrumental in really um, securing my interview with Meta and um, by the time, you know, it took so long, but by the time I secured my interview with Meta, he has already, he already moved on, but he was the one, Jordan was the one who made sure that I got an interview at Meta Then the rest was all up to me. Um, and then come to think of it, the same exact thing happened to me at Fitbit. Like I didn't know anyone at Fitbit and I was applying for jobs and wasn't getting it. And I just, uh, cold, you know, cold contacted, uh, um, Uh, a woman who, who worked at Fitbit and it was the same exact thing, built a relationship with her over a period of time. We eventually met for coffee and I let it be her idea. Like out of nowhere, she was just like, you know, you should work at, at Fitbit. I think there's a role coming up that I know of. Uh, We need a new physical security manager, um, And uh, why don't you put in for that? And I was like, you know, if I give my resume to you, will you put that in? And so it's just a matter of really investing and building those relationships. And I think that's Mm. a lot of things that people miss on doing. They they reach out to someone and immediately ask for a favor. Like they'll, hey, you know, they will get a nibble, and they'll say, hey, can you please, you know, give me an internal referral? And the person might do it or might not do it, or they might not because there's that little box when you give an internal referral. Like, how do you know this person? they'll be like, I don't know, I met them on LinkedIn and whatever. You know, whereas if they built a relationship with you, they might write a paragraph and say like, I've known this person for about four months and they're extraordinarily articulate and they have this wealth of experience and they're really good with the way they communicate. And um, I think that would be an outstanding asset for this team that they're applying for.
0: Yeah, I think that, that raises a really good point because, you know, the internal referral process is different by company. Yeah. You know, like, for example, at Google, it's just like what you just described, you know, you really have to know that person, you have to be able to personally vouch for them. Whereas, you know, with a lot of other companies, it's as simple as just providing a link, you know, and giving it to someone with zero, like I've known this person my whole life, or you don't have to give any kind of description whatsoever. And like a lot of companies actually have policies where they encourage people to spread that referral link as far and as wide as possible. You know, like, so I, you know, I used to work at TikTok and, you know, TikTok has an internal referral policy where you can literally just post the referral link on 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 LinkedIn, you know, and, you know, thereby basically <laughs> guaranteeing that literally hundreds, if not thousands of people will use that referral link. And it's not for any one job. like It's a referral link just in general. And so you can apply to like, 10 different jobs with an internal referral, you know, and uh, all across the world. And so, you know, I really think that the value of the internal referral is still, is still high. You know, if you follow a lot of recruiters like Amy Miller and others on LinkedIn, um, you know, they talk about how internal referrals make up 40% of their hires, and it's still something that has significant value. When it comes across a recruiter's desk, because ultimately, at least from my perspective, you know, your qualifications usually get you in the door, but it's how well that you, it's how well you fit in and how well you acclimate to the, the intended culture that usually gets you the job, Yeah, you know, because you can be a highly, highly qualified individual, but not get along with anyone. And that's going to be an issue, you know, and so, you know. I really think that the internal referral process still has value, but it's very, very subjective depending on the company that you work for, you know?
1: I'm finding a lot of companies are starting to use Greenhouse as their internal processing system and Greenhouse is pretty good about giving the person, giving their internal referral like a space to really, really give this person an accommodation that they should be considered extraordinary, you know, really highly. And it's a great software. It's very easy to use as the user. Like if I want to refer someone to GoFundMe, it's very simple for me to, to really, you know, write something glowing and, and really feel like they're getting a, a really good shot. So I'm, I'm happy to see that lots of companies are using greenhouse.
0: Yeah. I like that. I like that because, you know, if you just have a referral come in with no context, then, you know, that can, You know, sometimes it's hard to know how to interpret that, you know, Um, but at the same time, you know, if that if your company doesn't have that level of functionality because of the ATS system that you're using, then, you know, all you can do is just say, well, it's a referral versus this person who's applying cold,
1: you know, and so. One more thing you can do is you can email the hiring manager too, which I always yeah. do. I really, you know, like the person, and I mean, when I say like, I mean think they're very qualified. Um, and you know, I I just email the the hiring manager and I say, hey, look, I know this individual. I work with them at Meta, or I work with them, you know, at Google, um, and or I work with them in the government, and they should really be considered, you know, very strongly. Uh, let me know if you want to have a quick meeting so we can talk about it. And uh, I find that's also extraordinarily effective. People really, it resonates with people. It's compelling.
0: Yeah, because you're taking an extra step. You know, you're going outside of the, the, the HR process, if you will, and saying, hey, I really think that you guys should consider him because of my personal recollection or my personal knowledge, you know? And uh, I mean, I, I've had that happen a few times as a hiring manager, and that's always really resonated very well with me as well, you know, because again, like we, all, all of us as hiring managers, we want to make a good hire. You know, we want someone who's going to stay for a while. We want someone who's going to contribute. We want someone who is not only qualified, but is going to be able to, you know, interact extremely well in our team environment or within our, within our, you know, corporate culture. And so as much context as we can get to help us make a more informed decision, about that, that specific candidate. I think that anyone would, would welcome that information.
1: Definitely. So. Well, something I'd love to, I guess, to talk about if possible to your listeners, I think that would really help them a lot in the interview process is, you know, I'm sure that you've heard of it just because of your role, Eric, it's like the star method of answering questions. Mm-hmm. So,
0: Absolutely.
1: like I, you know, I think a lot of people, I interview a lot of people, you know, just in general, and I mean, I have for many years. And I realized that they're answering questions in a way that's hard for me to take notes. And I'm like trying to take notes, but they're speaking in a way. And I'm like, and in my mind, I'm like, how could they not know that I can't write this story? You know, it's not a matter of talking too fast, just the story is a little, it's it lacks structure. So I'm asking them, so most of the questions that your listeners are gonna get as they're interviewing for jobs are behavioral based questions. And they should really, you know, Google the star method. So S-T-A-R, you know, the star method of answering questions and, you know, that should be your format. So answer the question, not the way you would just for a regular person, answer the question, knowing this person's taking notes and they want to tell a story and using the star method. So it's like they ask you a question, when, if ever, have you, you know, led a project? that that you know solved a big problem for the company you worked for you know and then so it's used the star method as stands for situation you like tell the situation in, in a few sentences and then you you know go it's, then you move on to the task what task were you given in the role that you had then you move down to the action you took um you know because you probably had a variety of options and the r stands for result what was the result and i made yeah. sure like every time I was ever, you know, I got, you know, let's face it, like going through interviews with like Google and meta are, uh, are not easy. And I've been very successful with them because I used the star method. And I just made sure like every question I answered, you know, I would just, you know, just say exactly kind of use, you know, walking through a story and you see the person scribbling and taking notes and you know, that it's easy for them to take notes based off your story.
0: Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think the star method is, is one of the most common techniques that you can use, but it's also super simple, not only for the interviewer, but the interviewee. And what I recommend, especially for people who are coming out of the government world is the star method is something that's kind of a forward concept, you know, and, you know, understanding how the corporate interview process works will not only help you be more confident in how you respond to it, but it'll also help you in how you relay that information to the recruiter or whoever you're meeting with, because, you know, I always recommend, like I do a lot of mock interviews with people and I always recommend because it's the same process I use for myself that when you're interviewing, especially in in this age of remote interviewing, where it's so easy to be able to do this, like you couldn't do this in, in, in person, but for remote interviews, I just have the star method on the wall behind me. Oh, yeah. You know, and I have the examples I have, you know, so it's while I'm looking at the person, you know, on on camera, I can also look beyond the camera and look at exactly. okay. I want to focus on this. I want to focus on that, you know, and even as many times as I've done interviews, like literally hundreds over the years, not only for my own jobs, but for others. You still get excited. You know, you still get excited and you momentarily forget to utilize the star method or something similar. And so you jump right in and then you realize, crap, you know, I need to go back and I need to ensure that I'm giving them exactly the information that they asked for, but they also know that the, the, why this information matters, Yeah, you know? And so like when you're, when you're envisioning the star method and you practice on multiple questions, then you can really say like, hey, this was the issue. Here's how I solved it. And here's why it matters. Yeah. You know, and uh, I always tell people like when I'm doing like the LinkedIn aspect, especially like LinkedIn has this really cool feature of like when you click on the jobs section of LinkedIn, there's a little toolbar on the left and there's interview prep. And they have this list of 25 to 50 questions, the most commonly asked questions that you can encounter in an interview, like tell me about yourself, and all the behavioral-based questions that you alluded to earlier. But I always tell people, like, go in there and start practicing. Yeah. You know, look at the framework of how you should respond to every single question, and just utilize the star to start. How would I answer that? You know, how would I keep this this big example that I have in my head to two two and a half minutes max. Yeah. You know, and give people just a really, you know, comprehensive understanding of what you did and what was the impact, but without going into all the very, very technical jargon that, you know, you may have from law enforcement or the military and stuff like that.
1: That's a good point. Like, one thing I, you know, really would like to stress to, you know, people in the federal government, law enforcement is, you know, if you can say it, in four words, don't, don't say an eight sort of thing. Um, And and to this day, like when I get communications from people in the government, just in, even in my current role, like they send me these block formation paragraphs that you would, you know, the way people used to write, like in the seventies, and you're just scrolling through it. And you're just like, this is a joke. I'm not going to read any of this. Like, you know, every email you write to someone in the private sector, everything needs to be above the fold, meaning that they're not having to scroll through your email. it means you're going to have to put a lot more effort and energy and, and, and subtract things that aren't important in your email communications to them. Like I've seen, I've gotten thank you letters from people in the federal government, you know, after an interview and it's just like, and that the thank you letter turned me off. I'm like, this is how they think that we write in the private sector. Like it needs to be a sentence and that's it. Hey, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. It was great meeting you. You know, it's like, you know, and it sounds curt. Um, but it, that's the way we communicate, like in, especially in tech, maybe not in all, probably not, maybe not old school companies, (laughs) the private sector, some, some dusty old bank or something, but in tech and, and more companies that are more in the progressive, like it's just very quick communication. And that's it, you know, that's very admirable. Um, and you know, I find that even like when I've tried people in the federal government have reached out to me for help in their transition. And I say, cool, send me your resume and they'll have it just like their USA job. You know, jobs.gov resume, and it'll be like pages and pages. And I'll say, "Hey, narrow this down to one page," and they fight me on it. And they go, "No, I've done all these great things, and it talks about all these like special operations they were involved in, Joint tasks Force." I'm like, do, "I'm like, no one in the private sector, they're not going to think it's as cool as you think it is." Like they, yeah. really, you know, it's funny. When you speak to you know, you speak to FBI agents all the time about that. They, they, you know, they went in thinking that everyone thinks it's cool to work for the FBI, and it, and, and it is, but. They, they didn't know that they would be like, they knock on a door and be like, hi, I'm so-and-so with the FBI. And then the person asked the door and they're like, what do you want? And, uh, you know, beat it. Like, you know, and you're just like, <laughs> in, their, in their mind, they're like, I thought that I'd get some respect, but you're, you're just like, but the, the public is not as impressed as as you think they'll be. And also, you know, depending on like where you're applying in the country, they might have a negative view of of kind of what you did. Like not everyone's thrilled that I worked you know, for the CIA that I've met in the Bay area, they're like, you know, baby killer, you know, sort of, they were just like, you know, you, you know, this is your, why everything is all screwed up sort of thing. Or they would, you know, get testy with me at like a cocktail party, you know, like, hey, you know, I heard that you, you did this and like, you know, why, how do you feel about that? You know? And I'd have, they want me to justify like my past and existence. And it's not like, you know, I did anything that exciting anyway. So it's uh it is an interesting, it, you have to kind of adjust your perspective and you got to bite yeah. the ball realize you can't use your usa you know you know dot gov resume anymore yeah Yeah.
0: and i tell i i'm a big fan of you know like in 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 the financial institution sector you know um within aml there's a word called uh kyc you know which is know your customer and it's basically how we verify that people are who they say they are you know when they're applying for bank accounts and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and i've kind of I kind of adjusted that a little bit to the resume writing and said like, KYA, which is know your audience, you know, because, you know, like I I recently worked with an FBI guy out of San Antonio and he's led, you know, domestic and international counterterrorism squads, you know, for the past 15 years. And he's like, does that stuff even translate? I'm like, absolutely it does, but not in the format that you currently have it, you know? And again, If you happen to get someone on the other end of that phone call who is a law enforcement person or came from the federal law enforcement or intelligence community, you just lucked out, you know, but for most people, they have no idea what you do beyond either a personal experience they have with most likely a local police officer, or, you know, maybe someone in their family has had an experience. Maybe they, they like watching cops on Friday night, you know, whatever the case may be, like, they are not nearly going to have the context that you know they need to accurately correlate your current federal law enforcement responsibilities to the private sector you know and so I'm just, i just like i always i always tell people i want you to always think that there's some 22 year old person fresh out of college who's evaluating your resume you know, and all they're looking at in, in that pre-screening role that most companies have is, is this resume, does this resume meet the minimum qualifications for this job? Yes or no? You know, if yes, move them forward. If no, I don't care how amazing you are. Thanks, but no thanks. You yeah. know, and, you know, it's like, I, I, I struggle with the same thing, to be honest, Adam. Like, I have a lot of amazing stuff on my resume, at least from my perspective. And I'm like, I want to include that. I want to include everything on my resume. I want people to know how awesome I am or what, you know, what experience this is. But at the end of the day, every single job description is like a roadmap. It's like the, the hiring manager and the recruiter is saying, this is exactly what we want. This is what we need. And this is what we're looking for. And so that's the whole purpose of like tailoring your resume and understanding how to articulate your experience because, you know, If you think about it, like if you have two people who submit a resume to the same job and you're just we're just assuming that same number of years of experience, same industry, all that stuff. And one person just gives a job description from USA Jobs, you know, and they're just saying, you know, basically what you would find on a normal job description, they put it for their entire resume. And the other person is saying exactly how they meet those requirements. And they're using metrics. They're using, you know, short stories to explain what their impact was and, you know, how they met the expectations, et cetera. Obviously, this is a super subjective question, but who are you most likely to move forward to an interview? You know, interview processes are expensive, you know, because they take a lot of time, you know, and so you only want to move people forward who you think stand a really good chance of not only passing the hiring manager's expectations, but also, you know, actually making it to the final round. Yeah. you know, so any, any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. You know, I, I think that, you know, you really got to make sure that you're extraordinarily, you know, you're, you're, you know, when you have the actual interview, you got to make sure that you're just answering, you know, at the end of the day, just answering the question. And at the end, they really want to know that, can you program manage? Can you manage people? Can you uh, adapt to the different culture of the private sector? Um you know that is quite different from the the federal system um they really want to know that you know can you be really well organized and well-spoken and no one really cares that you led like a joint task force they just don't it doesn't always you know in the private sector it doesn't always translate they don't know what that means The so way they really want to hear is like about a program that you manage that was complex dealt with very, lots of cross-functional partners and have your stories like wired tight in terms of explaining how that worked and how that functioned and how you identified a problem and resolved it and they really want to see like you know how do you manage budgets like you know and give concrete examples of you've had and you can kind of really one, one advantage you do have coming from the government is that you probably managed budgets in the millions upon millions and millions of dollars. Um, and your budget might be for your particular office, the, over the, the position you're interviewing for might be quite smaller. So you can kind of boast that you're used to dealing with these huge numbers and these huge allocations. And therefore, you're very apt at, at budget management. And you can talk about you know, the fact that you know, the government's huge. So you probably manage like huge groups of people. Like even as a young federal employee, you know, I was managing like you know, 50, 60 contractors across the globe. And some of them worked for national laboratories. Some of them worked for just random contracting firms and subcontractors. And then I managed other feds. So it shows like it boasts like a really kind of cool story. You have a cool story to tell, but you have to tell it in the frame that makes sense to the private sector. And if you don't know how to do that, you know, reach out to your friends in the private sector and say, I'm going to tell you a a story of something cool I did with the federal government. How do I translate it? How do I put it in a different language that makes sense to the private sector?
0: Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree more. And, um, you know, a lot of the the people that I get are not in people management. Like they were, they never made it to the supervisory ranks, you know? And so they're like, well, I don't have that budget management experience. I don't have that people management experience. What do I focus on? And I'm like, well, you may not have that experience, but there's plenty of other things that you can focus on, you know, like you can still lead a program as an individual contributor. You can still talk about the number of investigations that you've conducted and what they were, you know, and then you can articulate how that correlates to the private sector. You know, you can talk about community public outreach. You can talk about process efficiency. Like, what did you identify that was inefficient or costing a lot of money or decreasing morale? What did you put into place to fix it? And then what was the measurable impact? You well, know, like, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead.
1: <laughs> no, it's, it got me, you got me excited. No, cause it makes perfect. And if you don't have that in your experience, so it took me a year, like basically a year and a half to get my, to leave the federal government to get a, a private sector job. And when I did, it was a doozy. You know, I got to work for Google, but you know, basically I had a year and a half. And if you don't have that experience, if you're working in law enforcement or some other federal position or military um, you know, realize that this might take a year and a half. So that's, you know, the good part about that is, is you have a year and a half to, to find those experiences in your federal role, so you can go to your supervisor and say, "Hey, look, you know, I want to really kind of expand my skill sets here. Is there anything I could take off your plate? Um, you know, that I can that where I can learn?" And then and then your supervisor might say, "Well, wh- well, what do you have in mind?" And you can kind of direct them to say, I want to, you know, be, you know, be a little smarter about how I deal with budgets. And the federal government is often pretty generous about, you know, giving you that training somewhere. There's probably a a federal training somewhere. And I know like it was Department of Agriculture had classes. I know when I was at National Nuclear Security Administration, which is, you know, semi-autonomous organization under Department of Energy, they would say, uh, if I asked for any training, they would say, yeah, go to the Department of Agriculture's training facility and you could take a budget class. And I remember like doing that and then being able to put that bullet point in my resume that I, you know, all of a sudden acquired more expertise in budget management. I know it sounds mm. boring, but it's something that's really needed to the private sector. You're going to need it as you move up in the private sector. There's no getting away from it. Even if you hate spreadsheets, like it's one of those, I'm sorry, you're just going to have yeah. to get good at it. And it's just the way it is. But once you get good at it, you're, you will love it. And it's not that bad anymore. So it's yeah, like,
0: you know, it's, it's, I tell a lot, one of the big, the most common questions I get is, "Well, I've worked for a small town PD. We only have thirty officers. You know, like I don't know what I've done. You know, and I'm like, the average patrol officer on an average day does more than most people will ever know. You know, whether it's communication, talking with people, using de-escalation and active listening to effectively communicate, whether it's talking people off a bridge." You know, whether it's crisis management, you know, whether it's, you know, leading an operation, like if you're leading a search warrant or an arrest warrant, you're still leading an incident. You're directing others in in pursuit of a common objective. You're focusing on safety, you're focusing on communication, you're focusing on a lot of, of different things that all have roots in the private sector, you know. Maybe it's emergency management, maybe you're responding to a natural disaster, maybe you're doing a tabletop exercise, you know, maybe you're presenting and you're, you know, creating a course curriculum or delivering training and roll call, or, you know, in, in an academy setting like there, God, there is so much there, you know, and that's just from an individual contributor perspective. You yeah. know, so and you, obviously, once you get up into the administrative ranks, then you start talking just like you were, you know, alluding to the budget management, profit and loss, p- direct reports, indirect reports, you know, contractors, um, you know, I tell people all the time, did you manage the CI? That's a contractor in my book, yeah. you know, and because that's literally the definition of the contractor. Yeah. You know, they're getting paid by the city to be at a certain performance level. That's a contractor, yeah. you know.
1: Another thing that they can focus on, like while you're applying for the jobs, you can read all about compliance regulation as it results to physical security. And not a lot of people like can boast that they know a lot about it if they, you know, and they don't really, you know, It's like, I can't rely on my legal teams to interpret compliance, you know, regulation for me, I have to kind of understand it myself, and use it as justification for my programs. So I spent like, you know, hours, if I could go back in time, you know, I learned, you know, all the compliance rules and regulations for physical security. Um, you know, later on as I came to the private sector. But if I could go back in time, I would start reading up on, you know, OSHA duty of care and that sort of thing now, becoming a subject matter expert. And and there's, you don't have to take a class on it. It's like, just read the compliance, take, you know, copious amount of notes, you know, have a big whiteboard behind your computer um, and, you know, have all the pertinent information of OSHA duty of care and see how that applies to the private sector. And once you, you, a reason why a lot of private sector companies have physical security programs is because of OSHA duty of care. They have to by for compliance rules that covers workplace violence prevention and all kinds of things, even travel safety and security risk management. Um, and you can often use that as a reference point uh, during the interview process. So it shows that you know the compliance rules and regulations. Uh, so I think that's also like would be a critical thing for you to highlight when you're being interviewed and get smart on it now while you're applying. And also, Maybe decide if you want to be a generalist or if you want to be, you know, a specialist in something in particular. I find that when I speak to law enforcement, military, federal employees who want to transition out, they don't know. They haven't really done like the thought exercise whether to be a generalist or, you know, whether to be like a specialist in one particular thing. Like I consider myself a generalist. My, you know, my thing is I build physical security programs for companies. I built Fitbit's first ever physical, you know, all enterprise comprehensive physical security program that covers, you know, access control, uh, threat analysis, and, you know, protective intelligence, uh, executive protection, uh, security guard management, um, you know, uh, safety and security training programs. I build these like very comprehensive you know pr- investigations programs, and so I'm. I just decided very early on I was going to be a generalist, and it served me very well. It's made me versatile, and it's helped me get director roles and that sort of thing. Um, and I have other people who just who just don't really want to learn all that stuff. Uh, they want to be a specialist. And, and had, you know, in one case, like you know, one of my friends, he you know, was an FBI agent, and he just really wanted to focus on investigations. And and yeah. that's really he just he didn't want to move outside that box, and that's cool too. You know, but he has to own that and and really figure out, like, how can he market himself that way? So, you know, I think that's a thought exercise a lot of your listeners should should really potentially do. Decide if you want to be a generalist of some kind or if you want to be a very particular specialist. And once you to make that decision, you know, fully commit to it the best you can by marketing yourself that way.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, and that's, that's really what you were kind of talking about in the beginning of our conversation, Adam, is the networking aspect, you know, like you don't know, what you don't know, you know, like, that's why it's great to listen to these podcasts and just get a sense of all the different stories and experiences across the board, because then you can go out and have those conversations with people. You know, I I tell, I, I recommend to people all the time, you know, make a list of your top 10, top 15 target companies. You know, then go find a person who's in the role that you think sounds fun or interesting at each of those companies. You know, obviously, you know, if you can leverage your network to facilitate an intro, do that. But if you don't, just reach out cold, you know, try to try to have a a 15, 20 minute conversation about, hey, you know, how did you get there? You know, how can I make myself more competitive? What is your day to day responsibilities look like? Do you like working there? What's the culture like? Because the more information that you have about that specific role and the industry and even the company will allow you just to make a really, really informed decision.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's uh, never be shy about re- cold, cold contacting. That's what LinkedIn's for. Like never be shy about it. Um, you know, you're not, but prepare to be a little hurt because if you reach out to like 15, 20 people, uh, only one will respond and that's a good, but that is a good rate of return. It's that's, that's better odds than dating, than, than dating apps. It's like, <laughs> so it's yeah. like, you know, it's, so it's actually, it's actually a good return. If you, you know, if you swipe 20 times and, and someone responds, you know, that's like, that's a pretty good deal. So, yeah, I, I would say like, you know, never be shy about it. Just send them an email and make it personal. If it's cut and paste, they'll know. But, uh, you know, if you say, hey, look, I noticed that you were in the army around the same time I was, or I noticed that you, um, you know, were in law enforcement here. I was in a law enforcement in a town, the same exact size, um, you know, across the country, but it was the same size. Uh, you know, I'm sure you and I have, would have a lot to talk about. Um, And I want to also learn how you transitioned. And, you know, if you make it personal, like people reach out to me all the time on LinkedIn that I don't know. And, I, you know, I think yeah. it's, and I, I am flattered. Like when they say something, just they give me like the, the, the smallest nugget of kindness. And like, they're just kind of like, hey, you, you've had a cool career. I'm like, maybe it's because I'm insecure. I'll be like, really? And then I'll, you know. <laughs> <they'll>... <laughs> and then I'll be happy to talk to them. And I think that's, you know, in a it really works. It may sound it may not be comfortable for you and also it's time consuming and you'll probably be frustrated because your rate of return is relatively low um uh, or relatively high depending on how you look at it. But um, you know, just know that let's just say that's the rate of return. If you send out 20 cold emails to people on LinkedIn, you know, trying to get their attention, only one will respond. But that's still a very valuable rate of return. And that person very well can get you the job you want.
0: I always, when I'm going through some of the packages that I do with people, I go through like job search strategies on LinkedIn because I think a lot of people don't realize how powerful the LinkedIn job search functionality is. Like there's a lot of filters. There's a lot of things that you can use to really drill down. And one of the things that I tell people is when you're going through like the employees for say, GoFundMe, if you're, if you see a job there as an investigator, you know, one of the first things that I'm looking for is I want to find how many investigators GoFundMe has. And then once I identify that through using like, you know, the investigator job title or investigation as a keyword on, on GoFundMe's LinkedIn page, then I want to find people who have the highest chance of potentially responding back to me. And the biggest way that you can do that is through a shared background, Yep, you know, and so You know, I tell people all the time, well, now that you have the list of, you know, let's just hypothetically say there's 50 people who have investigator in their job title at GoFundMe, now put investigator and law enforcement. Now we're going to pull all the people who have law enforcement and investigator somewhere in their job title, their background, their LinkedIn profile. And yeah, you may get a couple of corporate people who worked as like a law enforcement analyst at Meta or something like that. But a lot of that will pull a lot. This guy used to be a deputy sheriff. This guy used to be a police officer. This guy used to be X. And so if you reach out to those individuals and say, hey, I really love, love to talk to you. I see that we share a background in, in law enforcement. And I'm really looking to transition that person. In my, at least in my opinion, is much more likely to respond now than just getting a cold message because you have a shared background that you can relate to.
1: Definitely. And there's also methodology. You can get people come to you by, you know, doing kind of what I do. I, as you know, I write articles on LinkedIn and, you know, it's not, writing articles is just not that hard. It just it just isn't, um, you know, once you just sit down and, and you, you pick a topic that you're really excited about. Um, and then, you, you know, people in law enforcement, military, government, all have really cool stories that people are interested in. You know, really kind of hone down, like think about what's the most interesting story you have and how does it, how could it help people? you know, in their jobs, no matter where they work, some important life lesson and write a very personalized article about it and, and, you know, find a very cool graphic and publish it on LinkedIn. Like I've, I've, you know, I've only published like maybe seven or eight articles on LinkedIn, but I've gotten like hundreds and I mean, maybe even thousands of, of people who have connected with me and maybe hundreds of emails of, you know, people who are like, you know, just said, Hey, look, you know, I really, I appreciate it. You know, I'm always surprised that people still read, you know, and they, they do read the articles that you post and then they reach out to you and they say, I'm having a little bit of an issue at my company that is related to the article you wrote. You know, may I set up some time to speak with you about the issue I'm having. And I was yeah. going, yeah, sure. But if I was like, you know, if I was a, a cop and I was like, you know, and I wrote an article that was like, kind of, you know, very interesting and compelling, like write it about like, you know, workplace violence or something like that from a, you know, you can write an article saying workplace violence from a law enforcement perspective or you know, something like that, you know, and if you write that article and it's from your perspective, I don't know if you'll have to get permission to publish it or not from your department, but, you know, go ahead and, and look at the process for that, write that article. Um, you might, you know, it, there's no shame in, in hiring a professional editor to set, to write the article, you know, you know, hire a professional editor. You know, pay them a hundred dollars or whatever to say, "Hey, can you uh, make sure that my grammar is on point?" And if I, you know, and if I could make say this a little sharper, um, you know, just you know, whatever. It's just not a lot of. It's not a big investment. It's you know, it's going to be basically absolutely. Record. It's going to be you know five hours or six hours on a Sunday, and then a hundred dollars to pay a professional editor to make sure your grammar's on point, or run it through chat. You can run it through Chat GPT and say, uh, "Fix the grammar on this thing I wrote." you know, and I'll fix it up for you. And, you know, but I, I personally like the human touch and then um, and then publish it on LinkedIn with a cool graphic and, you know, and and ask all your friends on LinkedIn and all your contacts to, to repost it for you. Um, you know, Google the ideal time to post an article, and then people will come to you. And then, you know, here you are, like a a law enforcement officer. And then someone might at a company might say, Hey, I'm the head of physical security at this company. I'm having a, a domestic, you know, I'm having a lot of high risk terminations, and I'm a little worried about it. Can you give me your perspective on this or that? And then you go, Sure, no problem. I'll help you out. And then you have a meeting and a talk. And then at the end of that meeting, you know, you say, hey, look, you know, I'm interested in potentially transitioning from law enforcement to you or anyone you know, um, you know, have an open position I could apply for.
0: Mm. Yeah, I love that approach, brother. Um, and I, I could not agree more. Um, unfortunately, we have, to, we have to start the wrap up process. But is there any other advice that you would like to give to people who are currently considering or in the middle of a transition?
1: Yeah. You know, I think I would just go back to that original thing I I spoke about is deciding, you know, I keep on speaking to people who don't know what they want to do in the private sector. And I feel like there's no excuse for that. I think that that is really dependent on you being self-reflective. And then it's dependent on you internally and then externally doing your research and talking to people. If you don't really know what you want to do in the private sector, you haven't Really, you know, done the work essentially. I know it sounds harsh to say that, but it means you have internal work to do and external work to do. Your internal work to do is ask yourself, like, what do you really love doing? Um, and a lot of people surprisingly don't know the answer to that question because uh, they'll be like, I don't know. I just want to get, I just want to work in the private sector and make more money and, and yeah, be out, <laughs> out be out of my current situation. And that's yeah. not, you know, that's not an answer. It's like, what do you really want to do? What do you enjoy? Right. What do you like? And then there's the external work of doing research and talking to people, which is time consuming and can be frustrating and full of rejection, but you just got to do it. So I would say that would be my, my main advice.
0: Awesome. Well, I cannot not agree with you more on that, Adam. And you know, that's where networking and just talking to as many people as you can you know, about all the different jobs that are available out there will help give people a lot of context as to you know, I think I would like to do this, but now that I've talked to someone, nah, not really, and vice versa, you know, and just getting a good understanding is, is really, really helpful. But Adam, I really, really appreciate your time today. You've given us a lot to think about. And I really, really hope that whoever listens to this finds a lot of value as well. Um, if you did find value, please reach out to either one of us or both of us. Leave a comment on the post and really take this advice to heart because, you know, if we can do it, you can do it. That's very true. So, um, but yeah, Adam, thanks again for your time, brother. And I hope you have a good day.
1: Thanks, Eric. Appreciate it. Great All to right. see you again. Thank
0: yep, you, take too,
1: care. man. Bye. Later.